We're continuing on our series on prayer, and today we're focusing on the little verse from the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we want to focus on that idea of thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And this morning I got up, it was 4.45, and I let the dog out, and and I was sitting on the couch kind of acclimating to the day, and I just had this thought come through my brain. This was the thought. The thought was, is today the day? Is today the day, God? Is today the day you're going to come back? And are we ready? You know, when I go away on a trip, you guys know that um, I travel a few times a year. Most recently, we were in Southeast Asia for two weeks. But in 2023, there's a ton of traveling. I mean, I went to Qatar, I went to Italy, I went to Germany, I went to Southeast Asia. Just awesome opportunities the Lord gave Revolve to go and do trainings and coachings with workers around the world. And some of you guys were able to come on those trips. And whenever I come back from a trip, it's always like a little party in the Lackey house. My kids are still young enough that they're excited to see me when I come home, you know. And, um, and so sometimes they decorate the house, and they run up, and they give me hugs. And Gina, of course, has given me hugs. But I'll be honest with you guys, nobody misses me like my dog. <laughs> Kodiak, some of you guys have met Kodiak. He did a couple cameos on the podcast. Nobody misses me like Kodiak. And what's interesting is that everybody else knows theoretically when I'm going to come back. But Kodiak, he doesn't know, right? He doesn't know. And I know this is true because if I go to get the mail and I come back, oh man, he is excited. I go to Acme and I come back. He's all jacked up. Okay, it doesn't matter whether I'm gone for 20 seconds or whether I'm gone for two weeks. Kodiak is on top of the moon as soon as he sees me. He knows I'm coming back, but he doesn't know when I'm coming back. You know, when I think about that, waiting is different when we don't know the time. Right? When we know it's happening, we know Christmas is coming, you have a general idea of your due date, you know, if you're pregnant, we know those things. Uh, the wedding's on the horizon, you're doing the planning, blah, 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 blah. But when you don't know when it's coming, that's a different kind of waiting. I think about Caleb and Joy, who are doing domestic adoption, and they just were waiting and waiting and waiting, not knowing when they're going to get a call. They might get a call today. They might get a call next week. We have a lot of foster families, foster parents in the church. You guys know what that's like as well. You don't know when you're going to get the call. You can get the call at 10 p.m., get the call at 2 a.m. You don't know whether they're going to tell you they need a foster parent for a newborn or for a one-year-old. I think about Scotty. You guys know Scotty Cameron. Is a firefighter. Same thing with a firefighter, right? They're ready. They're waiting. Dale was a career firefighter. You're waiting. You don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to get a call today. Next week, you don't know. You know, Advent today is, we're kind of beginning, churches all over the world are beginning their Advent series today. Maybe some of you guys started Advent devotionals. Advent means coming, arriving. Advent is really all about waiting. Think of the Christmas carols we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, right? This, O oh, Jesus, please come. God with us, please arrive. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Right? Christmas, in a lot of ways, is about waiting. Jesus arrived after much waiting. Think about it. Adam, 
In Genesis chapter 3, Adam was given a promise that God would take one of Adam's descendants and he would crush the head of the snake. The snake would bruise his heel. God would repair the curse of sin. That was a promise given a long time ago. Abraham was given a promise that he would inherit a land, that his people would inherit a land, that they'd be a blessing, that he would have a son, and he waited and he waited and he waited. Moses was given a promise that they would raise up after him, God would raise up after him a prophet like him. David had been given a promise that he would always have an heir on the throne of Jerusalem for all eternity. And then Daniel saw a vision and a prophecy of that promise of God's eternal kingdom in Daniel chapter 7 when he sees the Son of Man coming on the clouds, destroying every kingdom and setting himself up, sitting next to the Ancient of Days. See, the people of God have always been accustomed to waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. Think about the fact that Adam got that promise from God in Genesis chapter 3. He said, I'm going to crush the serpent's head. Don't you worry about this. And then Adam lived almost a 1,000 years because there was less colds and disease and a lot less gluten. <laughs> gluten is the real enemy. <laughs> okay? And, and guess what? He died in faith. He didn't get to go back. He lived a thousand years almost, waiting, waiting, waiting. But Jesus did come, right? Galatians chapter 4 says that Jesus came in the fullness of time. In other words, when it was ripe to come, when all of the things were in the right place at the right time, all the pieces on the chessboard were set, that's when God said, it is time. And Jesus comes, and a few decades after his birth, Jesus is preaching um, on this place called the Mount of Olives. And it's probably the most famous sermon that Jesus delivers called the Sermon on the Mount. You can read it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And as Jesus is teaching on prayer, because his disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. He says, Our Father in heaven. He says, When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. In other words, set apart. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, hearing those words, every Jew in attendance thought the same thing about what Jesus meant. And I'll be honest with you, it's not what your study Bible says it means, because hindsight's twenty twenty. That's what your study Bible says that Jesus meant when we talk about the kingdom of God. That's not at all what every single Jew there would have thought. Every single Jew in attendance would have known that when Jesus said, pray for your kingdom to come, that Jesus was saying, pray for the coming Messiah, pray for the king, pray for the one who's going to restore the kingdom, who's going to defeat our enemies and right all of the wrongs. And Every Jew would have listened to Jesus say, hey, pray for the kingdom to come, and they would have said a hearty amen. But ironically, the king was right in front of them. The king was right in front of them that Jesus actually said, the kingdom of God is near to you when Jesus came. See, but ironically, although Jesus is saying essentially, wait for the kingdom and then yield to the kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done, waiting and yielding, Although they had waited for the kingdom for thousands of years, now the king was before them and they wouldn't yield to him. 
Instead, what would happen is they would what? They would crucify him. They would execute him for crimes he didn't commit. Jesus would die on a cross. Of course, the book of Acts tells us that this was according to the foreknowledge and the plan of God. This was according to God's grand masterpiece that he was writing, that he was scripting, that he was painting, weaving on the tapestry of time that God was going to redeem people and it would require a sacrifice. Because it's true that God is establishing a kingdom and Jesus came as the king to establish a kingdom. But what we need to remember is this. The kingdom that Jesus is establishing is a kingdom where there's no death, there's no disease, there's no violence, and there's no wickedness. And if that is to exist, then that means that God also has to purify a people who are free from wickedness so that they can actually enter into the kingdom and live in the kingdom. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You see, the sacrificial system, when you read the Old Testament and we rip those verses out of context and we're like, see, I don't believe in the Bible because they killed lambs. And we say weird things like that. We don't understand the context of the Bible, that all of that was purification. It was ritual cleansing so they could draw near to God. But the blood of goats and bulls could never purify you enough to draw near to God forever. There needed to be a better sacrifice. And Jesus was that better sacrifice that the blood of the Son of God, the innocent one, the only one who knew no sin, his blood was enough to purify my heart, my wretched heart, and your wretched heart, and all of our our disgustingly dirty, sin-infected, sin-dead hearts. Jesus' blood was adequate to purify, to purify as the authors of the New Testament say, a people for his own purposes. Paul says in Titus chapter two, to purify people for his own purposes, zealous for good works, eager for good works. Eager for what? For his kingdom. So you need to realize that in some ways when we pray, thy kingdom come, there's a sense, and I wanna be careful with my words here, there's a sense in which some of that prayer has come true. It's come true in the way that an acorn has the DNA of an oak tree, but it's not an oak tree, right? There's an already not yet tension that the kingdom has come near us in the form of a seed. The cornerstone is laid. Jesus has finished his work, but he has not necessarily already consummated his kingdom fully, right? We're waiting for Jesus. And so we don't stop praying thy kingdom come, but it does shift because in the Old Testament, every time they waited on God in prayer, they were praying for the fulfillment of his promise, the coming of the king. They were praying that God would rescue them from their enemies. And then he came and he did defeat sin and death. And now we continue to pray, but now we pray for the return of the king. We pray for the king to come back, like David was saying. And while we wait for his return, we submit to his rule. Long may he reign. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, summarizes it like this. John says, now little children, in other words, believers, remain in him with unwavering faith, so that at his return, we may have perfect confidence and not be ashamed and shrink away from him at his coming. 
You see, Jesus' prayer for God's kingdom, it recenters us. When we pray that, thy kingdom come, it recenters us on the reality that Jesus is coming back. And it challenges me to ask, am I ready? If today were the day, am I ready? And that's the question that I want you to wrestle with today. Are you ready? If today were the day, if Jesus came back at four o'clock, right before the Eagles game, would you be ready? Or would you be covered in nacho cheese? Right? Are you ready? And so as I was, I was praying over these passages this week, and this is a mammoth, what I'm talking about today is a mammoth topic. I mean, this could be a sermon series easily in and of itself. But I felt like the Lord gave me a simple way for us to remember this. He gave, and I know I normally don't do this. God gave me an acronym, <laughs> an acronym to help you remember these things. And so if you're a note taker, I know some of you guys are note takers. Um, if you're a note taker, whether you want to take notes in your phone or on a piece of paper, I'm not going to be offended if you're on your phone, um, unless you're like scrolling TikTok, then I'm highly offended. But I want to give you an acronym to remember what it means to be ready. Oh, sorry. I was on TikTok. I apologize. What it means to be ready. What it means, what does it truly mean to cry out to God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? So that we don't just pray that as like a memorized incantation. What does it really mean? And so, R, repentant. What does it mean to be ready to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? The first thing is this, R, repentant. Are you repentant? You know, Mark 1.15, Jesus arrives. He begins his public ministry after his baptism and time in the wilderness. And the first thing Jesus says is he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God, because he's the king, has come near to you. Repent and believe the good news. It's the first thing Jesus says. You see, let me tell you this. If you're here and you aren't even sure about this Christianity thing, you thought there was a, a dance recital today, you know, whatever it is going on in your heart, I want you to know this as clearly, as clearly, as clearly as I can say it. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save, save sinners. Jesus came to forgive sinners. Jesus came to build a new kingdom populated with forgiven sinners. That is his invitation. And the question really is, what is our RSVP? Jesus came to build a new kingdom of forgiven sinners. You see, when we talk about repentance, repentance means changing your heart, changing your mind, changing your direction. When we talk about repentance, my repentance, coming to God and saying, I'm sorry, Lord, will you please forgive me? Repentance doesn't earn me my forgiveness because I don't earn anything from God. Repentance is the proper logical response to forgiveness that is already offered. That forgiveness is offered free of charge by King Jesus, and the change in my mind is when I go, I'm going to try to earn this, versus, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to receive it. That's the repentance that I go from trying to be good enough, trying to stop sinning enough, trying to do this, do that, help people, walk the old lady across the street, carry the groceries. Oh, I messed up again. I'll try not to do that tomorrow. And I'm trying to do it. And instead I say, you know what? I'm just going to bank my entire life on this forgiveness thing because that's all I got. And yeah, amen. At least one other person is as much of a sinner as I am. Okay? 
That's our hope. That's our hope. Repentance is the proper logical response to forgiveness. Let me read this quote, kind of edited down from a book maybe some of you have read called The Ragamuffin Gospel. The kingdom is not for the super spiritual. It's not for the muscular who have made John Wayne and not Jesus their hero. It's not for the academic who would imprison Jesus in the ivory tower of exegesis. It is not for noisy, feel-good folks who manipulate Christianity into a naked appeal to emotion. It's not for hooded mystics who want magic in their religion. It's not for the alleluia Christian who lives only on the mountaintop and doesn't know what it's like to visit the valley of desolation. It is not for the fearless. It's not for the tearless. It's not for the red-hot zealot who boasts with the rich young ruler of the Gospel of Luke, all these commandments I have kept from my youth. It's not for the complacent who hoist over their shoulder a tote bag of honors, diplomas, and good works, actually believing that they have made it. It's not for the legalist who would rather surrender control of their soul to rules rather than run the risk of living in union with Jesus. The kingdom is for bedraggled, beat up, and burnt out people. It's for the sorely burdened who are still shifting the heavenly suitcase from one hand to the other. It's for the wobbly and weak need who know that they don't have it all together. It's for the inconsistent, unsteady disciples whose cheese is falling off their cracker. It is for poor, weak, sinful men and women. It is for the bent and the bruised who feel their lives are a grave disappointment to God. The kingdom is for smart people who know they are stupid and honest disciples who know they are scallywags. That's who the kingdom of God is for. And in response to that amazing good news, we say, why would I walk this way? I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. Are repentant. How are you ready, waiting, and yielding to God? Are are you ready? Are you repentant? Are you repentant? E, expect his return. Are you expecting Jesus to come back? Are you expectant when you think about the return of our king? Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 32, Jesus says, but concerning that day, like the day of the inauguration, or the day of the kingdom, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father knows. So be on guard and keep awake, for you don't know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. And he leaves home, and he puts his servants in his charge. He puts Kodiak in charge. And each with his, his work and his commands, and the doorkeeper has to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, in the morning, second breakfast, elevensies, afternoon tea, dinner, supper. You don't know, but if he comes suddenly and he finds you asleep, I say to you, stay awake. 
That's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 13. See, no one knows when Jesus is coming back, and any YouTube video or Instagram post or book that says, I know when Jesus is coming back, stay away. Because if Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back, I guarantee you that guy doesn't know when Jesus is coming back. What we do know is this. Jesus says, expectantly, be on guard. Expectantly, stay awake. He doesn't literally mean stay awake. He means spiritually stay awake. Metaphorically, be ready. Because the faithful servant looks forward, anticipating his master's return, and he keeps that fire burning. He keeps the towers guarded. He keeps food readily accessible. So when the master returns, he finds a waiting and yielded household with a heart that collectively cries out, your kingdom come, your will be done. So R is we are repentant. E is we are expectant. And A is ask him in prayer. The question is, will you pray and not lose heart? Now Luke, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable. And what's interesting is that often when people talk about this parable, they use it as... um, a parable to teach about perseverance and prayer, which is true. But if you look at the surrounding passages, it's right in the middle of Jesus talking about waiting for the end. So this is parallel to Mark 13. This is happening in Luke 17 and 18. And this is what Jesus says, uh, or Luke begins by saying, and Jesus told them a parable, which is a small story with a big idea, to the effect that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. Why would they lose heart? because the king's return is delayed. That's why they would lose heart. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, look, in a certain city, there was a judge. And the judge neither feared God, he didn't respect man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, judge, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, the judge refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I don't fear God, and I don't care about people, this widow keeps bothering me. And therefore, I will give her justice so she will not nag me to death. That's the Bill paraphrase version. Beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, now the parable's over, and this is what Jesus says. He says, now hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, Will not God give justice to elect, to his people, to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay over them? I tell you, God will give justice to them speedily, there's brackets here, when he arrives. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, the question is this, will he find faith on the earth? See, Jesus uses this parable to draw a comparison about God's heart towards us. And his point is, if this wicked judge, who's kind of like a jerk, if we're honest, if that wicked judge is kind to this widow, what do you think your heavenly father's going to do? You think your heavenly father's going to be like, I can't believe this guy's nagging me all the time. Is that what your heavenly father is going to do? He says, I tell you the truth. Although although the return of the king seems delayed, keep seeking, keep praying, keep asking in prayer, keep faith, because when he comes back, 
when he comes back, he's going to right every wrong. He's going to wipe away every tear, and he's going to bring about all of the things that your heart is craving in the righteous little corners, the recesses where there's good. The master will return, and he will deal with it. See, the question, the wonder is not, in your heart, maybe you wonder this sometimes, your wonder should not be, will Jesus be faithful? Will he fix all of the wrongs in my life? Will he bring about justice? Will he defend me? Of course Jesus is going to do all of those things. That's not the question. The real question is this, when the Son of Man returns, delayed, will his people still be waiting for him? Will they still be seeking him by faith? That's the question that Jesus is posing. Will he find people who are worn out, have given up and compromised, or will he find people who are still actively, watchfully praying for his return? Your kingdom come. And while we wait, your will be done. So we have repentant, expectant, and asking, and D, desire Jesus. If you want to be ready, if you want to wait and yield, desire Jesus. And the question for us is, will you desire Jesus today? Luke tells in chapter 10, he said, it says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way home, he came to a village. And at this village, there was a woman named Martha, and she opened up her home to him. And she had a sister named Mary. And Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet, and she was listening to what Jesus said. But Martha, she was distracted. Martha was playing the hostess. She was worried about all the preparations that she had, she had made and things she had to do. So she came to Jesus, and she kind of gives him a little what-what, and she says, Lord, don't you even care. My sister has left me to do all of the work by myself. Your Lord, tell her to help me. And Jesus, he goes, Martha. Martha, because right, because she's still kind of like doing that. He says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. See, in this life, you're going to have desires. You're going to have desires, and I'll be honest with you, I speak from experience. Your desires are going to be out of control. They're going to be misdirected, and you're going to feel like they control your life. Can anybody relate to that? Right? We just have crazy desires. I don't even want these desires. I still got them. I'm full. I just ate something that didn't even taste good. Now I got to eat something else to get that taste out of my mouth. Right? We have crazy desires. Pastor John Piper, who some of you have maybe heard him before, um, he has this quote. He said this. He said, remember, we're being redeemed. In other words, we're being saved and sanctified, changed in stages. If you're a follower in Christ, your guilt is taken away right now. And all your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven right now. And the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your life by faith if you're a believer right now. No condemnation is hanging over you at all right now. And yet, we wait for the redemption of our bodies. This meat tent 
Those bodies, these bodies are bodies of death. And inside this body of death, sin sets up a base of operations. And it tempts us with excessive and distorted desires. That's the life that we experience now. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? You see, desires in and themselves aren't wrong. It's just that Jesus is the better option. We're not supposed to be, you know, ascetic monks who just, they, they're going to go live in like a little corner of a shed and, and I'm just going to think about Jesus. I'm not ever going to have, you know, a donut ever again. No, Jesus is just better than a donut. It's not that you aren't allowed to enjoy the gifts of God, the little desires and the, and the pleasures of life, but Jesus is always better. And so the question is, will you desire Jesus today? And the way, the way that you find desire in Jesus, listen to me from, from 20 years of failure, okay? That's 20 years as a believer of failure. 40, 40, how old am I? 42 years of failure altogether, okay? Listen to me from my own experience. The way that you desire Jesus more today is not by trying harder. It's not by trying not to desire other things. That's not how you actually change. The way that you're designed by God to desire Jesus is when we remember repentance. We desire Jesus when we ask ourselves, like Paul in Romans chapter 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? And when we say, like Paul in Corinthians, I can't wait to get rid of this meat tent so that I finally cannot be so plagued with my own weak flesh. See, we desire Jesus when we stop turning to our own abilities. We stop turning to our own skills. We stop relying on our own resources. And instead, we remember the gospel, that Jesus came to save sinners and invite them into his kingdom. And from that place, we say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, because in Jesus, I'm victorious over this. And even though this might win the battle today, it will not win the war because Jesus has already conquered the grave. You see, the sweet grace of Jesus that we find each morning, new mercies every morning, that we find immediately the moment we return to him, even after the worst of days, the sweet grace of Jesus deepens your soul's desire for him. You want to desire Jesus reflect on the gospel, because he who has been forgiven of much loves much. And the final letter is why. Yield to his will. Yield to his will. He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Will you yield your will to the will of the king today, all the while knowing that though you will fail, his grace is enough? Will you yield your will Second Peter, Peter writes this in his letter. He says, chapter 3, verse 10, but the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. 
And since everything is going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be today? You ought to live holy, godly lives as you look forward, that's expectancy, to the day of God and speed or hasten along its coming. There's three things that Peter talks about in here that we have to yield to. The first thing he says this, he says, yield, pursue a life of holiness. Paul puts it this way in his epistles, put off what is right, put on, put off what is wrong, put on what is right. Take off the things that you know are of the flesh, get rid of them, be quick to repent of them, and put on the things that are good. That's the first yield. The second yield is this, look forward to the day of his coming realizing that all this life has to offer is mud pies compared to the banquet of God. And the third thing he says to yield in is to speed along the return of the Lord, which is a crazy thought. But the scriptures teach that by sharing the wonderful truth of the gospel, we hasten the day of the return of Christ. See, I share this acronym, you know, Repent, repentant, expectant, asking God in prayer, desiring Jesus, yielding. I share this acronym not as a checklist, but as a heart check. Do you get the difference between those? Not as a checklist, but as a heart check. I share it so that you have an idea of what it means to know when you pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that tomorrow morning when you, when you pray and you sit down and you can say, Lord, am I ready for your return? Is the posture of my heart one of repentance or obstinance? Am I expecting you or do I got like a rager planned later today and I really don't want you to come back? Am I asking you in prayer, clinging to faith? Am I desiring Jesus more than the things of the world? And do I want to yield to you? Even I know I'm weak, but do I want to yield to you? This is a heart that says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's not about, well, I hope you do more today. It's a posture of your heart more than anything else. There's two illustrations that I want to give that really paint a contrast of readiness and expectancy. They're both from Lord of the Rings. All right? So in Lord of the Rings, in the, the Return of the King, Denethor. Denethor is the steward of Gondor. In the movies and in the books, Denethor is the steward of Gondor. Here's the guy with like the, the wavy white hair who like destroys that tomato in the one scene, okay? Denethor is the steward of Gondor. Now a steward is assigned to look over the kingdom while the king was away. Now I know these things because I'm a nerd. More tech, technically, I'm a geek, not a nerd. But now, Denethor was the 26th steward. The 26th steward, that mean, meant he was the 26th steward who was waiting for the king to return. 26 lifetimes of men who sat not on the throne, but next to the throne because they were waiting for the true promised king of Gondor to return. And unlike the 20 how, five kings before him, Denethor grew tired of waiting for a king that never seemed to arrive. 
And so he began to abuse that power. He used it for his own purposes, so much so that he stopped waiting for the king. So much so that he didn't want the king to return. So much so, though, that, so that when the king did return, he fought against him. See, Denethor, J.R. Tolkien, was a follower of Jesus, instrumental in leading C.S. Lewis to the Lord. And Denethor is a biblical picture of what happens when you stop waiting on God in prayer, when you stop asking for his kingdom to come, and you stop yielding to his kingdom reign now. And what happens is you fall in love with this present age. And when you fall in love with this present age, you fall out of step with the king's heartbeat. And when you fall out of step with the king's heartbeat, you start building your own empire on earth, waiting for his kingdom to come and yielding to his kingdom reign keeps my wicked heart in check. Reminds me what's important. The second illustration comes from the Battle of Helm's Deep. The Battle of Helm's Deep. Gina's laughing at me. You married me, joke's on you. <laughs> As a meager group of men and elves set themselves inside this ancient fortress, there's this battle. This, they're being besieged by an army of orcs, an army from the enemy. And now the orcs arrive in the day of night or in the dark of night, rather, and they're bent on destroying all that is good in the world. And the battle looks bleak. The tides are turning, and it becomes apparent that the battle is going to be lost. But the troop of heroes remembers the words of their mentor a week before the battle, and he said to them, look to my coming at the first light of the fifth day. Could they survive that long? That's the question. As watchmen wait for the morning, they wait and they hope for whatever he has promised. As watchmen wait for the morning, they yield to the task at hand. The bottom line is they are in the thick of battle. They have to fight for their lives. They can't pretend like that's not happening. They have to fight without giving up while they wait. They're yielding to the events of the day while they wait for rescue. And then they see it. They see it, the first rays of dawn cracking over the hills and piercing the darkness and ushering in a new day. A day that wouldn't just bring light, but it would be the demise of this evil army as the heroes arrive. You see, we see in these two anecdotes, and you can joke that they're from Lord of the Rings, but you see in these two anecdotes, although fiction, the difference between waiting and yielding versus losing heart and growing impatient. Those who are ready versus those who are not. And so we wait for the Lord, praying that his kingdom would come soon. We yield to his reign surrendering to his will over our own today, remembering the gospel as the bomb of Gilead for those who fail. And we pray with the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 30, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. 
more than watchmen for the morning. And so the exhortation to us is do not grow weary of waiting for the Lord and losing your love. The king will return. Nevertheless, will he find surrendered hearts full of faith when he does? Father God, you are our Father. The fact that we can call you Father is miraculous. They threatened to kill Jesus when he called you, when he called you his Father. But now we are told, our Father, a collective group of people, we have been adopted into your family. And you're in heaven, and you're holy. You are not like us. Lord, how is it that you have taken people who are made of dust and you breathed the breath of eternal life into our being that although we are finite, we will become eternal? Lord, we pray for your return. God, we confess there's all a ton of things we love about this life. But we also remember that all of those pleasures are shadows, that heaven isn't going to be us sitting on a cloud with a harp, but heaven is going to be garden, the Garden of Eden as it was intended before the fall. And we won't wonder why we can't climb a hill or swim in a waterfall. We'll do those things with joy and without fear. And we will enjoy the creation that you have made, and it will be glorifying to you. So, Lord, while we wait, teach us to yield to your will because we know that although your ways are not our ways, we know that they are an invitation to an abundant life. So make us more like you. Align our hearts more with yours. Change us, Lord, that your will would be done at Revolve in Cape May County, as it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.